Hi there, I'm Jackie the Joke Man Marling, and I've had the exquisite pleasure of once again being on Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with the wonderful Gilbert Gottfried and the equally amazing Frank Santo Padre. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert and Frank's Amazing Colossal Obsessions with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. We're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer, Frank Verderosa. Yes, we are. And we're doing uh, an interview here with a New York-based uh, author and journalist. And he's written for everything. The Wall Street Journal, Vanity Fair, TV Guide, The Hollywood Reporter... Uh, New York Magazine, the LA Times, on and on and on. And uh, he has also written a book with the legendary Bud Friedman. Yes. And that book is called The Improv, an oral history of the comedy club that revolutionized stand-up. Someone who I believe uh, this Bud Friedman, some uh, someone I've met uh, maybe once or twice. Well, let's introduce Trip maybe, first. Just maybe. <laughs> Trip just Wetzel. <laughs> Trip Wetzel. Trip, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on. This is a pleasure. There's a rumor that you bought Gilbert lunch. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I did. I it know he didn't a very pay. enjoyable lunch. Well, it was fun. It was a lovely time. Jerry Lewis was there. Yeah, and it was funny. I remember, like, they were honoring Jerry Lewis the night before, I think, or a couple of days before, and I couldn't make it because I was working out of town. And then I was... Uh, being interviewed by you and Jerry Lewis walked in. What do you know? Yeah. And I sat and talked to him for a little bit. Who sprung for lunch? Was it Jerry? Was it Trip? <laughs> <laughs> Trip, how did you get involved with, with the legendary Bud? Well, I'm a, you know, I'm an entertainment journalist, as you read in the marvelous intro, and I was covering the comedy business for, uh, a lot of different newspapers in New York, the, and I was doing a story for the Daily News when Jimmy Fallon moved back from L, moved, moved the Tonight Show to New York about mm -hmm. uh, what that was going to do to the New York comedy scene versus the LA comedy scene, and I to get an opinion about what it was going to do to the LA comedy scene, I wanted to talk to Bud uh, to get his opinion. Number one, because he's a very you know obviously a legendary figure out here sure. in the business, and. Uh, but I also had in the back of my mind, I always wanted to do a book with him because I knew the legend, the history of the club so well. And uh, so we discussed it and he he and Alex's wife were coming to New York for Jimmy's premiere. And uh, we had lunch with my agent at the Friars Club and put a proposal together and got a deal about a year and a half later. A year, a little, about a year later, you know, mm -hmm. sort of after we had started talking about this. Kind of how it came about. Yeah. Interesting. One of the things I remember about the improv, because it was, you know, just I was going there every night. And I would walk from the subway from 42nd and 6th to 46th and 9th. I think it's 46th. Uh, 44th, 44th and 9th, yeah. 44th, 44th and 9th. Between 9th yeah. and 10th. So, yeah. the, the old Vietnamese restaurant. And and back yeah. in those days, what uh, what Times Square was, that was scary. 
That was be, you know, how I was never shot and killed in any of those walks. Especially the walk back from the club, which would sometimes be three in the morning to walk to the subway. Yeah. Well, for our listeners that don't know, there aren't New Yorkers. That's what they call Hell's Kitchen. Yeah. Back then. And now Hell's Kitchen is Disneyland. It's been cleaned up considerably. Yes. You remember the first time you went in there? I I remember, yeah, I mean, I remember going in there once, and then they liked me, but I still had to keep going back to audition. And after a while, like, the comics were setting up that you'd wait out in a line in the street for, like, a few hours and then sign in. It, it was... uh. And then finally they said, okay, you're a regular. And then you'd become a regular. And it was no assurance you'd ever get on stage. You'd hang out every single night. Right, because I read somewhere that Bud knew you since you were a teenager. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I I started doing comedy, I was 15. So I might have been 16 or 17 when I started going to the improv. Take us back, Trip. Tell us about, for, for people that don't know, take us back to, to, you know, Bud's decision to do this. He came to New, he came to New York from Boston to, to be a theatrical producer. Yeah. He didn't really plan on opening a comedy club. Not at all. It was, it was totally the first thing from his mind. He wasn't, you know, he, he'd always had, you know, thoughts in the back of his mind about doing something in show business. Uh, but he was a kid of the Depression. His father died when he was a very young boy, nine years old. And uh, he, you know, you wanted to do something practical. So he was working in advertising and up in Boston at a boutique firm um, working with the shoe accounts mainly. It was called Marvin and Leonard Advertising. I don't think you want to hear this much. But uh, when he turned 30, it was a do-or-die time for him. And he went to... He was dating at the time a woman named Silver Saunders who was in the course of Fiorello and how to succeed in business without really trying. At the time, he made the decision to move back to New York and become a Broadway producer in about a year. Uh, he did this because, you know, he thought that he thought that sounded like an interesting thing to do and he didn't want to be an actor. So and they were trying to. While he was trying to do this, he was trying. He was searching for things to do to make a living, and he decided to open up this Broadway coffee house, after hours coffee house for people, for singers mainly, where they could get something to eat and right. get, up and do com- get up there and sing and then do some comedy. And it, but the comedy really didn't come until later. Right. Well, he said in the book that he really had no intention of it being a comedy club, that, that Silver, Silver was a singer and he was looking for a place that people could get up and just work out a song. Yeah. And there was, was no place like that. Yeah, I think it was originally going to be like Actors and singers would have a hangout afterwards. Yeah. And go up and do like, maybe they'd practice a little dramatic pieces and singers would sing. And yeah, it wasn't a comedy club. Not at all. Until about the first year into it or so, when a guy named Dave Astor wandered in, he, was, he had been at a place called the Blue Angel which is a very popular place on the um, Upper East Side in the 50s, and asked Bud if he could do some comedy and, uh, you know, try out some bets, and Bud thought, why not? Uh, Dave was a very good friend of Richard Pryor's, who at that time was doing, you know, working in the coffee house scene down in the village. Um, so Richard Pryor got up before he became Richard Pryor, and it was just sort of the Pied Piper effect. There were other guys like David Fry, 
uh, Rodney Dangerfield eventually got in there. Mm-hmm. It was just it was sort of a perfect collusion, you know, if you will. Yeah, because actors were hanging out there. Rudy Valley, Robert Morris, oh yes. Jason Robards yeah. would come, and Christopher yeah. Plummer. That's some of the fun stuff yeah. in the and book. Then, then I heard a story that one time Pryor was on stage, and Nipsey Russell was watching him, and Nipsey Russell was getting pissed off. And someone said, what's wrong? And Nipsey Russell said, he's just doing Bill Cosby. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Well, back in those, I mean, the, you know, essentially before prior, before he had the evolution in the late 60s, uh, where he went through this metamorphosis, I mean, he, he was largely, his act was largely Cosby. You know, he, if you look at those old Sullivan clips he had on the, you know, the suit and tie and everything. Yeah, you he know. was scrubbed so up totally like Carlin before Carlin oh, did yes. the hippie thing. Yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And can, let's name some of the people, besides myself, of course, who who used to play at the improv in its comedy times. Well, of course, there was Stiller and Mira, um, Robert Klein. Um, you had uh, so many, you know, um, David Brenner, even though Bud didn't, he, didn't get along with him. Jay Leno, um, Alan Zweibel. Bell. Dick Cavett came Dick in and Cavett, bombed yes. early. Dick Cavett at yeah. first, yes. Oh, Very yeah. Early yeah. Dick Cavett. Even Jackie Vernon. Yes, Jackie Vernon, sure. And then later on, uh, Richard Lewis, Larry David, Bill Maher. Seinfeld. Uh, yeah, yeah. Seinfeld. Yeah. Seinfeld and Paul Reiser. Yeah. Yeah, Elaine Boozler. Oh, yeah. 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 Gilbert Gottfried. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and Buddy Mantia. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Who's in the book? Right. I was so happy to see Buddy getting mentioned in the book. We know oh, Buddy. Oh, I was happy we, about that. Very too. nice we, guy. Oh, he's the best guy. We love him. And I was trying to, there's a point in the book where you talk about Bette Midler singing on stage yeah. with, Bo- who was, it? Who was yeah. Buddy's partner? Bobby Alto? Oh, yes. Bo- Bobby, Bobby and Alto. Buddy Mantia and Danny Aiello and singing. And Marvin, Marvin Braverman too. The, the, the Untouchables. Oh, the, the Untouchables. Oh, yeah, so crazy. then Marvin Braverman. Marvin Braverman. Yeah. Yeah. And, and they had a couple of famous waitresses, at least one yes. famous waitress, by the name of Bette Midler. Well, actually, she was not a waitress. People think that, but she was not a waitress. She never oh. was a waitress, and I addressed that in the book. She uh, went in there. The way she came to Bud's attention, there was a woman by the name of Helen Verbert who was in um, Fiddler on the Roof with Bet, which Bet was in at the time, and she was trying to sort of find her way and recommended uh, Bet to Bud. And Bud, of course— Thought of the world of Helen Verbert. Helen Verbert is a she's a, a big character actress. You know, you, she she showed up in a lot of uh, sitcoms in the seventies and eighties and late sixties. Um, brought her in, and, and but the first time that she came on, you know, Bud was not impressed with her at all. That she was singing dirges, and uh, they just they fell flat. And then so, it, and then a couple of nights later, he went to hear another singer whose name I forget who was managing at the time. At, perform at a club called the African Room, which was uh, right around the corner from the improv, mm-hmm. and had ordered a glass of wine, and Bet got up there and sang that night and just blew him away. And uh, before his sing- before his other, um, the woman he was there, actually supposed to see, was there. And uh, so Bud just, and immediately took a liking to him. And then from there, Bud got, you know, they signed a one-year agreement from the manager. So, yeah. Yeah, and that's how that happened, yeah. It was always accepted as fact. That Bette Midler was a waitress, and yeah. uh, she became successful, and I think 
So many uh, girls' lives were destroyed by thinking if they become a waitress, I could become a big star like Bette Midler. And now we're here? To, yeah. To, to, to point out the truth that it never was the case. Although, wow. although Pat Benatar was a waitress at Catch because Rick Newman managed this is her. true. Oh, yeah. 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 Very true. Yeah. Well, Elaine. I don't Booth- know if she was a waitress there, though. Yeah, Elaine was a waitress at, at the improv, yeah. Right. And Deborah Winger out here in Los Angeles was a waitress. So, you know, there were people who made it, but but that was never a waitress. So, Oh, Deborah Winger. Right. Yeah. Well, Liz, Liz Torres was a waitress at yeah. the improv. Yeah. Yeah. Liz Torres, yeah. yes. Yeah. And I think Elaine. Um, Is that wrong, too? The, she might have been. I think she was a waitress, yeah. Or hat check girl for a while. I'm not sure. Or hostess. One of the three. And he hired Manilow to play piano there, too, as well. Correct. Yeah, before yeah. he hit it big, yeah. Do you have any memory of this? Do You you, you were hanging out in the club. Do you remember seeing I, Bette and Barry I Manilow? I don't remember Bette and Barry Manilow. Well, yeah. Do you remember Danny Aiello getting up and singing with Robert <laughs> Klein? Because <laughs> apparently that happened. Like the improv, you know, if it were in New York, uh, it was in competition with Catch, Catch Rising Star. And then in L.A., it was practically a war between the improv and the comedy store. And in fact, yes. there was one... I was out in L.A. when it happened. Oh, Mitzi versus Bud. Yeah. yeah. It was a long war. It's in the book. Yeah, and I was out yeah. in L.A. when it happened when there was a fire at the improv, a big fire. And it was very popular, the rumor that... You know, someone from the comedy store came over and set fire to the improv. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. And now back to the show. Tell us, there's so many great stories about Rodney in the book, uh, Trip. But, yeah. but uh, tell us, uh, and Gilbert will love this one particularly, tell us why he kept a framed photo of Joey Ross. <laughs> <laughs> Because he hated his guts. <laughs> he hated his guts. Wait. The guy from Car 54, where are you? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, they'd work together in strip yeah. clubs. Rodney yeah, Dangerfield hated Joey Roach. Right, yeah. And so why did he keep the picture? Uh, because to, to remind himself that he was a better comic than Joey, what I understand, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the, sto- the, the, the thing in the book was to remind himself that he wasn't the ugliest son of a bitch on the planet. Right, that too. <laughs> That too, yeah. that too. <laughs> <laughs> now, were there any, God knows not for me, but were there any real sex uh, experiences in the improv? Well, Pryor did go on stage naked. That's not quite, uh, no, it's not yeah, quite a sex story. Yeah, yeah. Tell that. That is quite a sex story. Well, he was trying to upstage a singer one night and went up, you know, he went into the went into the bathroom and came parading out in his birthday suit with just his socks on and in front of the stage and this woman Betty Rhodes was up there singing at the time and didn't blink. And Silver turned to Bud and said, "There goes another myth, you know, you know, cuz he she could see see him down there, you know." And <laughs> yeah. So Richard Pryor was not in doubt. At least according to, so to Silver. Tell tell us where Andy Kaufman came from and how he first auditioned. 
Well, he he was a, he was from Great Neck Long Island originally, uh, you know as you know, and he was was a comic out there, um, and, and had just been fired from uh, one of the coffee houses out there. Um, and Bud got a call from the owner of this coffee house, whose name escapes me at the moment, on the on the same day, and, and said, you know, there's this good, there's this kid I really want you to see. His name is Andy Kaufman. And Bud uh, said, well, send him in. Go ahead and send him in. And and and. So Bud did, and he decided to adopt a wait and see attitude, and and he came in into the club that night and do and doing the foreign man accent from Taxi, which became a lot on Taxi, um, and everyone was just being, you know, what the hell is going on here with this guy? I mean, it was just nobody could really understand it. You know, there were just titters and jitters and everything, and nobody understood it. And uh, finally, Kaufman, you know, as the tension was getting so bad that Bud was wondering. What was going to go on? And he 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 then he was doing the foreign man accent, you know, uh, telling him that he was from the island of the Cashman Sea and everything like that, um, you know, that famous thing. Um, as soon as he was, it was just as bad as it could possibly get. He turned around and did launched into Elvis, <laughs> the, the treat me right impersonation, which is you know he's which you'll see in Man on the Moon, All right. uh, which was one a pivotal scene in Man on the Moon when Bud was in that scene. But he he was there were some factual things there. But anyway, um, he launched into it, and you know Bud fell in love with him instantly. There, you know, he became a real a regular after that. But it was one of the strangest auditions ever. He says, "Do you remember seeing him, Gil, early on? I I in the remember." Clubs? Yeah, I remember he would come in, and he would always, uh, he was always weird. He wasn't one of those people who was just weird on stage. And um, what I remember best is he went up on stage, and he started going, a hundred bottles of beer on the wall, a hundred bottles of beer. And at first it was funny, and then... You realize he's doing the entire song. <laughs> it was an endurance and test. And the audience is yeah, it's in the book. Yeah, yeah, the audience is getting really angry and are screaming at him and walking out. And I thought it was hysterical because he he did the entire till it got to one bottle of beer on the wall. You have a little bit of that in your in your in, oh, oh, in, yes. in your act, <laughs> <laughs> kind of seeing how far. You used to do that very, very protracted intro. You're a lovely crowd. Oh, yes. And I learned it would take you like 15 minutes to start yeah. to see if you could keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. You remember doing this? And and, and I, I, it's it's kind of, well, a lot of people talk about it, how I would go up on stage and sometimes just chase the audience out. <laughs> I would go up and do whatever popped into my head <laughs> and I'd lose... In fact, sometimes they said that club owners would put me up when it was time to end the night. The check spot. You get the check spot. (laughs) (laughs) There's a nice story in the book, too, Tripp, about about, uh, Gilbert and Robin Williams, the night Robin Williams came in. Yeah, Yeah. that was, well, Robin was at his peak with, um, it was when, well, Mork and Mindy Mindy was at its peak, and and Robin was a major star. And and so whenever Robin Williams walked into a comedy club, forget it. I mean, they whoever was on, they throw off stage and get Robin on right away. And what I remember was I was about to go on stage and I'm standing there, you know, in the hallway there waiting to go on. 
and they're about to introduce me, and then the door opens up and Robin appears, which I figure, oh, well, I better go sit down again. And and they said, okay, Robin, you're on next. And and Robin said to them, um, he goes, no, I've got some people here to see me, and I'd really like them to see Gilbert first. And he had me go on first, which I always remembered. It's so sweet. And he was a classy guy like that. Many people said that about him. Yeah, he was a very, very thoughtful guy like that. And then I remember when I got off stage, uh, Robin was like, still laughing and rubbing his eyes and he said oh that really baked my cookies <laughs> you remember this yes. you remember what he said to you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what i wouldn't give to have been in the club that night we have to talk about one of the fun the the, the fun things in the book is of course the history of larry david in the club yes. specifically yes. in the improv yeah and and we've we've talked with some people. We've talked with Zweibel yes, about it, and 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 somebody else I can't remember. He, so I guess Richard hated, Lewis. He hated going on there. He hated the audiences. Yeah, tell tell us what would happen, Trip. Well, if he didn't like the audience, it was just good night. You know, he would just leave. He would just throw the mic down and leave off. And that was that was kind of his, uh, you know, his thing. And and Zweibel tells a good story in the book about. You know, when when Alan was going to go on, when he was following Larry David and he had a spot at, say, you know, 1030 or so and say, Alan, you know, he knew to get there at 930 because there was, you know, damn good chance that he was going to, you know, storm off stage if he didn't like if he didn't if he heard something he didn't like or he didn't see something in the audience he didn't like. He just left. Yeah. yeah. And the interesting thing, too, is is uh, when he came into the club. Uh, and he's been a, a very good sport about this, I will say, because we, you know, we, we that's one of the, in all the press coverage we've been getting, and this is one, it's one of the big, big, big things that a lot of reporters have been noting about how uh, confrontational he was. Uh, and he was at our party last night, which I'm sorry you guys couldn't be at on Melrose, uh, you know. But anyway, when, when, when Larry came in in 74, he wanted to try stand-up comedy. He had never done it in his life. And... You know, he lived around the corner where you went over Gilbert to watch a, a porno flick one time, as I recall, which we'll get into. <laughs> Did he live in the Manhattan Towers? The oh, Manhattan yeah. Towers? He, yeah. He had a he had an apartment in Manhattan Towers, and, and I went with Larry up to his apartment because he had cable, and there was an actress that we both liked that was going to appear naked in some, some movie that she appeared naked in was going to be showing. So we got together and watched the movie. Incredible. Did you have a meal too? Dinner? Uh, Did you no. know when you had dinner with Larry, you had to share utensils? Oh, yeah. That was, that was, a, that was a story John DeBellis told me, you know, that, that when you, who wrote that, also wrote that great book, uh, Stand Up Guys. Uh, that when he would, when he would, when DeBellis and Larry David would have dinner, I mean, he only had one, he only had one, uh, one fork, one knife. And so they had to eat in chefs. Yeah. True story. Yeah. You also say in the book, Gil, that, uh, when you, you, you didn't know what was going to become of Larry. At some point you thought this guy could actually end up homeless. Yeah. I because said, he was that uncompromising. Yeah. I, I said he could either become a major star or be living in the subway. <laughs> like, he was one of those people, if one day I saw him sleeping on a subway grating, I, I, I wouldn't go, oh my God, I'm shocked. 
Tell, <laughs> <laughs> and I remember my favorite is I remember a, one time Larry was on stage and he would always get into a fight with someone in the audience. They would always be. And, and this guy sh- sh- from the audience screamed out to Larry, he goes, hey, oh, yeah, well, your mother fucks my dog. And Larry said, uh, well, I bet your dog doesn't enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> and Albrecht, Chris Albrecht would jump in when oh, there was a, when there oh, was an altercation oh, yeah. on occasion. Yeah, someone would have to jump in. Yeah, because there'd be some guys would stand up and they'd keep standing up, you know, until they were like ten feet tall. You know, one of my favorite stories in the book trip is Marvin Braverman's story about about being in the hospital with Johnny Carson. With Carson, yeah. What a wild story! Can you t- can you, I can't even believe it happened, but can you tell it? Well, I you know I can't either, and and God knows if it actually did because Mar- Marvin is Marvin is still very, with us. Very, very, He's still with us, but he's a very interesting character. We we met at the we I, I I was he was one of the guys who was very hard to track down, and um, the guy the guy from the the Untouchables that we just mentioned, the, you know, Buddy the, Buddy Mantia, um, Buddy, yeah, was the guy that actually put me in touch with him, and he you know, uh, and it was very hard to reach him. I tried many 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 times, and we we finally did meet at a uh, Starbucks on in Lincoln Center. And he had just cracked the rib. <laughs> so he was he was in a bad mood that day, a very pissy mood that day. But we sat down and he told that story about Carson. And it's, it's a very amusing story. So, you know, nobody's come back at me yet saying it's not true. So hopefully it is. But I think it is a true story. Yeah. And you're talking about the chapter with Brenner, David Brenner. Yeah. 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 That you, well, go ahead. Tell it because it's wild. Well. The story basically is that, uh, that, you know, a lot of people didn't, you know, he got he got, he got very annoyed with David Brunner, uh, who was always writing his material down and things like that. And and when Carson was dying, apparently, um, you know, and Marvin had a, a big chip on his shoulder. And when Carson was dying at Cedar Sonia Hospital in 2003, apparently Marvin was there with having a knee replacement or something done and rolled himself into Carson's room and said to him, uh, one night, you know, why did you, you know, why did you put Brenner on instead of me? And it's because he said to him, uh, because Brenner wasn't funny. You know, and then in other words, you know, he he was better than Brenner. In other words, that's what he was saying. Wow. So Marvin yeah. <laughs> wheels himself into Johnny Carson's hospital that room. Is, that is surreal. Johnny Carson is on his last legs, the poor man. Yeah, allegedly, says, yes. Yeah. Why did you put David Brenner on? In front of me, and Johnny says, because Brenner wasn't funny. <laughs> so, <laughs> assumedly, so he wasn't yeah. he, he yes. wasn't in any way threatened by Brenner. So, Johnny's having, is on no. his last breath, and <laughs> he's got to put up with that shit. <laughs> Unbelievable story. <laughs> oh, my God. And, so- <laughs> and I remember I worked with uh, Marvin Brofman twice. Oh, it's Broverman. I, apo- uh, I apologize. Well, yeah, I, yes. I always get that name confused. Uh, he, uh, first pilot I did was a horrible pilot called the further adventures of Wally Brown. And I, I did that. And then later on, I got him onto a pilot I was doing called Norman's corner that was written by Larry Larry David. David, You bet. (laughs) 
But I remember what I remember about when the the fire happened at the improv. One one night I went over there, and uh, Michael, you know the the showroom was destroyed, but like the front room was kind of passable. So Michael Richards was standing on some table or something. And they were still putting on yeah. a show. That's in the book. Yeah. yeah in his he underwear was... <laughs> or something. He, he, he dressed up like a fireman or something. Yeah. And I remember. And he, 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 tried, he tried to people. Yeah. I, I remember one night I was there and he was. And I just would join him. I just joined him for the night. And we like co-hosted this show. Oh, what I wouldn't give to be at that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. All this great comedy what was I like? missed. What was that like? That had to be incredible. Uh, yeah, it's very strange. I, I wish they were recordings of that. You know, you talk in the book, uh, Trip, that Bud had an eye for talent, that he had the, he kind of had an ability to discern when he saw a comic who was who had you know, who had what it takes and who didn't. The the benign yeah. dictator that he refers to himself yeah, as. Yeah, the benign dictator. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. yeah. And and he was almost never wrong. No, he wasn't. I think, you know, I, I, I would say his track record was, was very good. I, in fact, it would be, I don't think there were many examples where, where he was wrong. Um, you know, or people he, you know, went unexpected. And, you know, and of course, Alex's wife told him a lot about, you know, people that he should listen to, like Adam Sandler, for example. And um, who, he, he first started to catch a rising star. And Adam brought him out here. He was in, in L.A. two weeks later. His wife, Alex, said, you know, Bud, you should really look at this kid. He's very good. And Alex didn't, Bud didn't think he had much of an act at first. And Alex told him to, you know, take a second look. And, he, you know, he brought him out to L.A. But I, the people that he didn't, got was wrong about, I really don't know that many people he was. But I'm sure there were examples, but none that I know of, none that we really discussed. So I don't know. Well, let's plug the book again. It's a, it's a great read trip, and it's so full I mean, for our fans who want to read interviews, I mean, Kevin Nealon, Lewis Black, Jerry Seinfeld, uh, David Spade, uh, everybody in the world is interviewed. Jimmy Walker, Paul Reiser, uh, Danny Aiello, who, of course, was the doorman, uh, which, and, and which we discussed with Danny. Keenan Ivory Wayne was also was so I read. I think Apatow was a, was a doorman in the West yeah. Coast Club. Judd was, Judd was there last night. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. There's, there's so many great stories in the book. Uh, I mean, from comics, of course, you know Tom Dreesen, uh, Robert Klein, uh, our friend Dick Cavett, uh, and sad stories, too, about, about Freddie Prinze. Yeah. Um, that was a, you know, one of comedy's biggest tragedies. And, of course, it was, you know, it's, it was one of the first, so it was, you know, it's, it's, that was one of the biggest things, you know, because he was such a brilliant comic and uh, had so much potential and so much, you know, it was just a case of too fast, too soon. Yeah. Did you know him, Gil, Freddie Prince? Uh no, he uh was already becoming big when I was still struggling again. I remember seeing him. I I saw him on stage a couple of times and I you know, I catch and the improv. But I, I didn't know him. Yeah. It's a great book, Trip. There's so much information here. And I also learned a ton about Bud. I didn't know that Bud was a hero in the Korean War. I didn't know he served at Pork Chop Hill. I didn't know he had a purple heart. I didn't know he hung out with Lottie Lenya. <laughs> did you know his real name was Gerson? <laughs> I bet you didn't know his real name was Gerson either. I didn't know his name was Gerson. Did you know his real name is Gerson? No. Gerson Friedman? No. And Bud came from his parents calling him Buddy. And and it's funny, like right after he was wounded in the war, like about a week or two later the war ended. Yeah. <laughs>
Bud, Bud is a fascinating character and such uh, such a major figure in the history of comedy in the 20th and, century. And he would always walk around with a monocle. Yeah, where like, did the monocle come from, Trip? <laughs> well, the monocle, the way, the, the way he tells that story was he, back in the early days of the restaurant, he... Um, he could, which I can very easily understand right now because I'm going very badly far-sighted. I'm nearsighted already. But anyway, in the early days of the restaurant, he was trying to read the menus in the dark, and the, the waitresses would bring him a check to look at, looking at a check to look at, and it was so dark, and he couldn't see it. Uh, and he didn't need eyeglasses at the time, which he doesn't now because he's since had cataract surgery. And he didn't wear a sport coat, and he didn't, so he didn't have a pocket to put his glasses in, so he bought this monocle to start looking over the menus and things like that. And that's how it all started. And it's kind of stuck after that. Yeah. There are also a lot of our podcast guests are interviewed in this book. Robert Wool, David Steinberg, uh, and it goes on and on. Alan Zweibel, obviously. In Bo- fact, Bob's Muda. Yeah. I remember Larry yeah. David getting pissed off as he was about everything in the world. But one time him saying, what, uh, what kind of a uh, man? Not only uh, walks around with a monocle, but has a sign with a a picture of a monocle on it. (laughs) (laughs) Hilarious. The book is The Improv, an oral history of the comedy club that revolutionized stand-up. Yep. And our guest was Trip Wetzel. Thank you. Lots of great stories in the book. Uh, uh, stories about people I knew, Richard Jenny, and certainly even uh, Mr. Oh. Gottfried. Yes. Our and, erstwhile host is interviewed. And, and I got a free lunch out of it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And we're doing a we're doing something at the Friars Club on uh, the 9th, 17th of October. Hope you guys can make oh, it. Oh, good. We'll get this up before the yeah. 17th of October. Uh, will you guys be Will you guys be in, in town then, or are you going to be out here? Or? I never know it's me, unless I have my date book in front of me. Is there okay. another free lunch in it for him, Trip? There could be. That would, that would certainly uh, lead me in that direction. He usually eats in the kitchen. So plug the event. It's October 17th at the New York Friars. Well, it's not a, it's a, it's a, actually, that's a private oh, event. Oh, damn it. We are doing something on the 19th at Shakespeare Books on Lexington and 68th Street. Right in my neighborhood. And, uh, I love that bookstore. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's going to be a great signing. So, yeah. We will be there. Great. Thanks for doing great. this. Thanks for and, writing the book. And say hi to Bud, please, for us. We will. Thank you. I'm Gilbert Gottfried. I'm here with my co-host Frank Santo Padre, and this has been another edition of Gilbert and Frank's Amazing Colossal Obsessions. Let me hear a little more of that Larry David. <laughs> <laughs> what the, what's wrong with someone like this? That they walk around wearing a monocle. <laughs> Nobody wears a monocle nowadays, and he puts his sign. His sign is a monocle. <laughs> Thank you, Trip. Thank you, guys. This has been a full treat. Same for us. Some obsessions. Hi, I'm Mick Garris, and I'm with Gilbert Gottfried on the Amazing Colossal Podcast.